One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jones! I'm gonna blow up the acrony! Your persistent surprises even me. You're gonna give mercenaries a bad name. Dr. Jones? Surely you don't think you can escape from this island? It depends on how reasonable we're all willing to be. All I want is the girl. If we refuse, then your Fuhrer has no prize. Okay, stand back. All of you, stand back. back. Okay, Jones. You win. Blow it up. Zurück! 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 Yes, blow it up! Throw it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that raids pop culture and excavates the history underneath it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and with the release of Ready Player One, we thought we would go back to one of Spielberg's absolute classics, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And to celebrate the launch of Ready Player One, we're actually giving away five pairs of tickets to see the movie in a cinema near you. If you want to get full details of how to win the tickets, listen out for the end of the podcast where I'll give you all the details. If you want to follow us, don't forget we're on Twitter at Neon Podcast. And now it's time for Raiders which means that we really do have to understand 
about a legend or possibly true story that's going on right now in an obscure church in Ethiopia. And the other thing that Raiders definitely brings to the forefront is one of its most famous scenes leads you into an interesting journey into plain technology of the Third Reich. Possible. You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, but always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So let's first of all talk about the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is now technically has been retconned into being Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark to fit in with the other three movies, was a film that came out in the early 1980s, directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Harrison Ford. What's interesting about the film itself is it shares DNA with another very famous bit of pop culture, Star Wars. Both of them were influenced by the serials that you got in the 40s and 50s. Back then, when you went to the cinema, you didn't just go and see the main movie. You would quite often see a newsreel like Pathé. You would see a few little short, episodic cinematic experiences. And you might also get a B movie. We use this phrase nowadays meaning not very good movie, and it meant the same 50, 60 years ago. These were the films that didn't have the same budget. They didn't have the big stars. They could have some really interesting ideas, but they weren't the A movie. They weren't there for the main event. But in particular, if we start using things like Flash Gordon a very popular series of stories that came out in the 1940s in film form. They were out earlier in terms of comics and things like that. Of course, he was eventually turned into a movie himself, a very camp movie uh, in the early 1980s because of the success of Star Wars. Uh, Flash Gordon in that scenario was a football player, but he was originally a polo player, perhaps not one for the uh, masses there. So that's why that was changed. But anyway, the point is, and I, I got to see some of the 1940s Flash Gordon episodes on TV back in the 1980s. Now, the thing was, they would always end on a cliffhanger to make you want to come back and see what happened next. But they cheated. There were a number of situations where the cliffhanger seemed almost impossible. And they were hoping that in the intervening week before you seeing one episode and seeing the next episode, that you would have forgotten quite how it ended. And of course, you wouldn't have been able to rewind or check check on it. And then they proceeded. But if you were to watch them day after day, as I did uh, on TV, you spotted these tricks. The one that really stuck in my mind, and this is going back at least 30 years, is... Flash Gordon was about to jump out of a window with his jetpack, and the baddie shot him in the back. 
And so you see our hero flailing his arms and he's dead. I mean, he's, he's, he's been shot. This is not looking good for Flash Gordon. Tune in next time to find out what happens to Flash. Well, I did, as I'm sure all the children back in the day did as well. And what I discovered was that in the next episode, exactly the same scene played out, but the guy missed the shot and Flash just jumped out the window and jetpacked away. But it's these constant close calls that inspired George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. For the record, I think it's an amazing movie. I think it's a brilliant bit of both acting, sheer momentum. It's cool. It's a little bit scary. It looks amazing still to this day. I mean, uh, the film itself is now, of course, more than 30 years old, but it's so influential. And that fanfare, the Indiana Jones music, oh, boy, does that put a smile on my face anytime I hear it. And, and most people would agree. But let's talk about what's actually in the film. Now, to be clear about Neon's rules, I'm going to treat the movies or the video games or the TV series with the same level of strictness as they use themselves. So something like Raiders of the Lost Ark is clearly meant to be fun and a little bit silly. So I'm not going to take it to task as much as, let's say, something like uh, Braveheart, for example, because or uh, the, uh, how about, um, saving private Ryan? Things like that are presented in far more of a, this is almost documentary. This is how it really happened. And there isn't much of a sense of humor or wink about the history. It's presenting it as it is. And therefore, I think I can be a little bit stricter with those sorts of movies. But with Raids of the Lost Ark, it's fun, pure and simple, but it does raise a few interesting points about history. And I'm going to say that there are even a couple of things that people complain about Raise the Lost Ark, which shows that they haven't looked into the history because, surprisingly, Raiders gets it right. So let's first of all talk about his job, shall we? Indiana Jones, we all know, is an archaeologist. And he's a terrible archaeologist, because if you know anything about archaeology, and I have a degree in it for the record, it's about context. Context is king when it comes to discovering artifacts. It doesn't matter what that artifact is made out of, be it gold or just wood. The point is, how it is interacting with its surroundings is the really important bit from the point of view of, you know, the science and history stuff. So the thing about Indy is he absolutely loves grabbing stuff and running away with it. The opening scene, which I'm going to argue is one of the greatest opening scenes of any movie ever, it introduces us to the character, it's heart-poundingly dense, it's just brilliant. But fundamentally, what it's about is an archaeologist going into a temple and removing the most important artifact from that temple, which, oh yeah, destroys a lot of that priceless temple. Now, of course, the whole thing is very much Saturday matinee style. It's, uh, it's very much in the tone of the Flash Gordons of this world. And it's set it's clearly in some kind of Central America, South American type scenario. And it seems to be a, a, something a bit like 
well, it's, it's a mishmash, quite frankly, of could it be Mayan? Could it be Aztec? Could it be Incan? It could kind of be any of those things. And they're not the same civilization. They're separated by centuries and thousands of miles of geography as well. But it's all, in inverted commas, a bit Central American-y. Um, and it looks great. It looks exotic. And that's the critical thing, because if they'd set the entire thing in, let's say, Salisbury Hill, that would have been nice. And I guess it would have been slightly exotic for Americans. But I think enough people know that there aren't pit traps and rolling boulders and things like that in European archaeology that you could necessarily get away with it. But people have gone missing in the jungles looking for stuff, particularly in the early 1920s. That genuinely happened. Uh, indeed, a movie that came out in 2017, The Lost City of Z, is about just that. It's a good film, but I have sort of given away the ending. And indeed, if you're sitting there going, I've never heard of The Lost City of Z, well, that already gives you a clue to the fact that they never quite find the city. But it is it is gorgeously shot. The man it's all about is a remarkable archaeologist, adventurer, explorer, and also a soldier as well. Slightly off track here, guys. But the point is, we are talking about, they deliberately picked an area that is still considered exotic. But it isn't based in much reality. Apart from the tomb of the first Chinese emperor told you we'd get there. So Qi Shi Huang, and I apologize to anybody who knows Mandarin Chinese because I probably just butchered his name, but Qin Shi Huang, the Qi bit is where we get China. He's basically the, the founder of the modern concept of China. And he was the first emperor and he fought many battles and he unified large swathes of what we would now call China. But it is worth pointing out he certainly didn't unify all of it. He was an impressive man. He was a mighty warlord and there are many legends set up around him. And one of the things that tickled me was, like a lot of great men in history, he didn't want to die. So he was looking for pretty much any way to stop him from failing, from diminishing, from dying. And one thing that a lot of cultures thought would help you with immortality was mercury because mercury is the only metal that's a liquid at room temperature. And if you've ever had a chance to see mercury in action, and I don't just mean in a thermometer, it's really weird. It kind of gloops together. It's magical. And if you don't understand what its properties are, you're going to assume that, well, it, it never seems to rust and it always seems to be on the move and it's all a bit weird. And so therefore, it it's unsurprising that people started to think, oh, therefore, it must have magical properties. And so this first emperor was actually eating mercury. Now, today we know mercury is a really toxic substance, and it probably didn't help him. And we know that he went a little bit mad towards the end of his reign. For example, he would demand some of his followers would row him into the middle of a lake as he fired a crossbow at all the sea serpents that were around them. I guess they all just had to sit there and go, good shot, sire. So yes, unsurprisingly, eating mercury is bad for your health, and he was always going to die anyway. 
And he did. Uh, this is all happening uh, in the third century BC in obviously China. So this is before Rome had really become the empire that we know of it today. It's still 150 years before we get Julius Caesar, basically. And then he was buried, and he was buried in a magnificent tomb. The chroniclers go into great depth about the treasures that are in these tomb, in this tomb, this giant network and mausoleum. It had a jewel-encrusted map of the world where all the rivers, lakes, and seas were denoted with mercury. So something connecting both his life with his death, and it must look spectacular. It the discussions about all the wealth that was in there, was noted that you might not want to necessarily get to it. And this is where we link back to Indiana Jones, because we know there are crossbow pit traps in that tomb. The closest thing in the real world to breaking into a tomb to get cool, ancient, priceless relics and also potentially die in the process through booby traps is the first emperor of China's tomb. So, why's nobody been in it? Well, for starters, people thought that it was a myth. This is over 2,000 years old, and for nearly 2,000 years, people have forgotten where it was. There was a big hill in the middle of uh, China, and some people thought it might be there, and a lot of people said, well, that's a colossal hill. That's not actually a tomb. And then in the 1970s, a farmer was digging up his fields and he got this weird bit of a statue coming up in his field. And so he got some archaeologists to get involved and they started digging and they found more fragments of ceramic soldiers and they kept digging and then they found whole ones and they kept digging and they found dozens of them and they kept digging and they found thousands of them. And that is what we call today the Terracotta Army. The Terracotta Army is considered by many one of the wonders of the world. The thing is that everybody was so impressed with all the gems and jewels and treasures inside the first emperor's tomb, nobody, nobody mentioned the Terracotta Army by any of the contemporaries. To them, it paled in comparison to what was inside the tomb, and today we think it's one of the most amazing archaeological finds we've ever discovered. So, if the if the stuff outside the tomb is blowing our minds, and for the record, I've I've been to an exhibition about the terracotta army, and it's worth mentioning, it isn't just terracotta soldiers. There are entire suits of scale male armour that are made out of stone. And people assume that they had no practical purpose, but they were created to last forever so that they could be used as armour for the first emperor of China. There are metal birds and animals. There seems to be pleasure gardens made that, that are around this tomb. There are amazing areas of complexity and remarkable archaeological finds, and this is all outside the tomb. The Chinese are quite superstitious. They, do, they have great respect for their ancestors and spirits, and they don't generally want to stir up ancestors. 
And if there's one ancestor you really don't want to stir up, it's the first emperor of China who founded the nation and also uh, fought many battles. He's uh, he's sort of part revered and part you know, people are part scared of him really in China. And do you really want to be digging up that tomb? So that hill I mentioned, it turned out, yeah, yeah, that entire huge hill is man-made and in it is the first emperor of China's tomb but they're not going to be opening it anytime soon. They have, however, carried out various geological searches and surveys, and they know that there are a number of chambers underneath it, so it's definitely the right place. But the thing that I find really interesting is when they did soil samples, they discovered an unusual amount of mercury in the soil. So, therefore, showing potentially that story about the rivers of mercury and all that good stuff genuinely seems to be true. Now, now that I've told you all this stuff, of course, the question is, why didn't they put any of this into Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? I don't know, is a simple answer. I would argue that ancient China is just as mysterious and probably as well known as being dangerous and exotic as the Aztecs. And if we're going to argue that, well, they, they moved away from the kind of religious stuff or the Western religious stuff, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is the first in, in the first movie to the Indian stuff in Temple of Doom, well, maybe they should have moved to China and done that instead. But anyway, of course, there is the well, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And therefore, what are they going for? They're going for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Now, I find the Ark of the Covenant, the story behind it, uh, fascinating because, do you know what? Everybody does. And they do a great description in the actual movie about it, uh, what they actually say about the Ark of the Covenant. They describe how sort of there's power coming out of it and the, the, the Jews had it in front of their armies in ancient times. And it seemed to live to lead them to great victories and successes. And that's basically what the Bible says. Again, this is an example of them actually getting it right in terms of both the archaeology and the story. Uh, however, it's interesting that they then talk about this whole place of Tanis. And actually, what happens beyond that is far more interesting. You see, if you, you know your ancient history, the kingdoms of the Jews, you know, Judea, etc., they basically were wedged between two major powers. To the south, there was the ancient Egyptians, let's call them that. And then to the north, there were the various civilizations uh, around Babylon. So, you know, it could be the Assyrians or the Mesopotamians or the Babylonians. These people were separated by quite a lot of uh, time and space. But the, the idea is that they were wedged in between the two. And they ended up quite often becoming subservient, uh, vassal states to either one or the other uh, of these, depending on, you know, who was in ascendancy at the time. It was very rare for them to be, uh, for them, for them to be independent. But the, the times when they were independent and times when they were fighting, it seemed that the Ark of the Covenant was basically the banner, the, let's call it the lucky charm of the Israelites. But they were conquered so many times, it's unlikely that that war banner of some description was not whisked away 
by some kind of ruler at some point. And indeed, it does seem to disappear from the Bible about the same time the ancient Egyptians invade once again the area. And so could it have ended up in, in Egypt as a part of war booty? Yeah, probably, possibly. But what I absolutely love about this is uh, it isn't actually a lost ark at all, because in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in Aksum, which is the basically the religious capital of Ethiopia, the modern day country of Ethiopia, which has many links to the biblical time. There are uh, groups of black people in Ethiopia that very much claim to be of descendants of uh, the Jewish lost tribe. So there are lots of links. You wouldn't necessarily think of them as natural, but all you have to do is look at a map and you can see that Ethiopia is very much on the way to Egypt from Israel and would have been trading with them, etc. So why wouldn't they have, have uh, spread their religion with each other? However, what's interesting is in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, they claim to have the Ark of the Covenant. It, of course, gets a little bit more complicated than that. And what they say is that it's basically tucked away in a room and there is a man, a priest, who looks after it. He, he basically tends to it as if it's alive. And he says this. And and this is the this is one of these almost uh, philosophical questions uh, that I love. He says basically anybody who wants to look at the Ark of the Covenant just to see it, just to check that it's there, just to reaffirm their faith that oh yeah it's really there. Well, that is being disrespectful to God's power on earth, and you will be struck down. You will be killed if all you want to do is look at the Ark. However, if you believe the art to be there and, you know, if you tend to it like this guy does, then you're safe. You're fine. Now, I'm definitely somebody in the former category rather than the latter category. And the question, therefore, has to be, would you? Would you walk around that corner and have a look? Because you might walk around the corner and go, oh, it's an orange carton. The whole thing's a lie. That's going to feel faintly disappointing. And you're not really going to have much chance to go, ah, you know, told you so. However, walking around the corner and seeing the Ark of the Covenant in all its glory, go, oh, oh, wow. How wrong was I? And then you're zapped and sent to hell. I'm not entirely sure that, you know, curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. Not so much. So, the Ark of the Covenant isn't actually lost. All Indiana Jones had to do was go to Ethiopia and go to the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in Aksum. And indeed, uh, I believe all Ethiopian churches have a small model of that church in their church to say we are somehow connected back to the Ark of the Covenant, which I think is lovely. But let's move on, shall we? One of the bits of Raiders of the Lost Ark that people think is wrong isn't. There's the great scene where Indy is on the ship and the Germans turn up on the U-boat and they start ramp-sacking the ship and it's like, where's Indiana Jones? And one of the pirate sort of sailor types says, oh, I've seen him. And there he is on the U-boat and you then see the U-boat heading off a number of times in the Indiana Jones movies to 
depict travel, which was a quite a common way in B-movies back in the day, is just show an arrow going across a map. That's an awful lot cheaper than actually getting a film crew to go to the Andes or whatever. So the big question is, is Indiana Jones a brave man, but he surely can't hold his breath from somewhere in the Mediterranean to somewhere in the Aegean. That's just not going to happen. And indeed, I thought it was really interesting that there was a an interview with somebody, a filmmaker, and they were talking about what heroes can and can't do. And they're saying that somebody like Superman can do whatever we want because we understand that he is superhuman, quite literally. But when you get someone like James Bond, we'll believe that he can leap 50 feet, even though that beats what an Olympic level professional athlete can do. It looks doable. And for somebody in their prime and a hero who's being shot at and blah, 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 you'll buy it. But you won't buy it if he leaps 100 feet. That's clearly impossible. And therefore, you lose that sense of belief. And Indiana Jones is a very believable, unbelievable character. You know, when he gets punched, he he winces and he doesn't get it right all the time. And there's the great line in Raise the Lost Ark, Indy, what are you going to do? I don't know, I'm just going to make it up as I go along. And, you know, we, we're rooting for him as he does all this kind of stuff. But we don't buy the fact that he can hold his breath for days clinging onto a U-boat. But that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what U-boats were and what they could do. Because actually, well, first of all, U-boats were used in World War I as well as World War II. And in World War I, they similarly attacked merchant vessels. They tried to starve England out. And Churchill at that time was head of the Admiralty and understood that that was an incredibly dangerous situation. Now, technology being what it was, the U-boats weren't as good as they were in World War II. It didn't work, but Churchill understood the threat. So in World War II, he took the threat incredibly seriously. However, even by World War II, submarines in general, and U-boats specifically, they would run on electric batteries when they could, uh, but that would be underwater. The rest of the time, they'd actually run with basically diesel-driven engines, which needed to be above the water. They couldn't hold their breaths, even in U-boats, for three weeks or something like that. So actually, what most people don't realize is U-boats, for most of the time, were on the surface of the water. They only went under as they got close towards Allied convoys. They only went under when they spotted a plane in the sky and they wanted to try and disappear. So in Raiders of the Lost Ark, seeing we don't see any kind of attack on them. You actually realize that chances are they just sailed to that undisclosed island somewhere in the Aegean Greek islands. The other thing worth mentioning there is that I can link it to another great World War II movie, Das Boot. And Das Boot shows you how uncomfortable and awful it was on a German U-boat. And what they also show you is there are times when they would much prefer to just chug along on, on the ocean waves rather than beneath them. However, even Raiders of the Lost Ark, a big Hollywood production, even they uh, recognised that they'd like to cut costs, and so actually they used the same model U-boat from Dust Boot as the U-boat in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there we go. So there's an actual link between those, those two very fine movies. Very fine in very different ways, of course. And I do recommend, if you haven't seen Dust Boot, do give it a go. It's an exceptional movie. It is in German, just to warn you. You're going to have to read subtitles. Anyway, 
Let's come on to another bit of technology in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is yeah, you know, there are so many great scenes, but one of the most fun is the fight around the airplane with the big, bald German. Now, for the record, that's actually a British stuntman. That big, bald German who fights Indiana Jones around that plane that's slowly rotating. He, you've already seen him once in the movie. He's the big Nepalese guy who gets killed uh, at the beginning of the film in the fight in the bar. And also you see him again in... The Temple of Doom, where he's the really big Sikh guard who gets crushed in the rock machine right at the end of the film. And he was meant to be, and indeed there was a film shot of him in The Last Crusade, where he has a fight with Indiana Jones as he's basically getting on the airship. But that was cut out. However, even so, he's the only person to have been killed by Indiana Jones three times. Anyway, that airplane is an example of something called a a giant wing or flying wing aircraft and it looks weird and clearly there weren't any there weren't loads of those in the skies of world war ii but it's a mistake to say that the thing's completely made up the idea of a, a giant wing this is basically a, an aircraft without a tail They'd been around since the 1920s and indeed by 1944 they actually had one that looked even more futuristic than the one you see in in the movie, which was powered by jet engines rather than the propellers that you see in the movie. So this idea of a flying wing aircraft, an experimental aircraft, perhaps carrying something experimental like the, the Ark of the Covenant, that's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility. And it does lead us into the wonderful cul-de-sac of German and Nazi plans and technology. So I'm going to finish off this podcast with two uh, examples of that. First of all, perhaps the most epic potential German superweapon, which was a giant orbital mirror. Now, this actually comes from a rather forgotten article in Life magazine in 1945. That's an American magazine, which revealed uh, a U.S. Army's technical expert who discussed with German scientists that they had seriously planned to build a sun gun. And the design was a mile-wide giant mirror which could be used to focus the sun on a target, rather like mag um, using a magnifying glass, concentrating sunlight and burning ants. The, now, to be fair, the idea predated Hitler. The brain behind the idea was the German rocket scientist Hermann Oberth, who came up with the idea in 1923. You see, he recognized the potential for rockets to put man-made devices into orbit around the Earth, something that we take for granted. You may even be listening to this podcast being bounced off a satellite. So, Oberth was thinking about satellites in the 1920s, and to be fair, with Sputnik, you do have satellites in the 1950s. And when you look at the rocket technology the Germans were using by the 1940s, if they had invested their money in the 20s and 30s, they might well have been able to get this thing up in the air. Oberth, however, was not a warmonger, and he estimated it would take 15 years, cost 3 million marks, to create the device. And what he was thinking was that he could provide the Earth with sunshine on demand anywhere on the globe. So places like, for example, northern Norway, which suffers from six months of darkness, they could probably do with some sunlight at certain times. It could help grow crops. But of course, like any great piece of technology, it could obviously be turned into a weapon as well. And it was only later 
that he ultimately described his idea of the sun gun as an ultimate weapon. My space mirror, he wrote, is like the hand mirrors that schoolboys use to flash circles of sunlight on the ceiling in the classrooms. A sudden beam flashed on the teacher's face may be an unpleasant, might give an unpleasant reaction. Had it been constructed and had it worked, there was absolutely nothing the Allies had that could take it out. It could well have been the piece of technology that won the war. And actually, when you look at the tech around at the time, it was feasible. But the Nazis, as we know, weren't just worried about technology. I've mentioned fixed-wing aircraft and, uh, sorry, flying-wing aircraft, and I mentioned... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Also, sun guns. But also, as we know, sadly, they were all into blood purity. This led to many, many horrific crimes, and please do not think that I'm any way diminishing them or ignoring them. It's not quite the right for this podcast to go delve into the horrors of the Holocaust, but they all genuinely happened, and they happened because of a perverted science and a horrific organization that was out to just destroy people for who they were, which is a crime in any way you want to describe it. But they also wanted to create pure things beyond human. So to give you an idea, well-respected archaeologists of the day in the 1930s were co-opted to look for pagan Germanic ancestors. Some of the research and conclusions were legitimate, but when facts didn't match the fantasy, the facts were discarded in favour of Aryan propaganda. This is using history and archaeology as a weapon to prove ideologically twisted ideas. All of these attempts were to get back to Europe's, and I'm using this inverted commas, true roots, which included looking at bloodlines and lineage. Nowadays, we look, we would call that uh, the human genome or DNA, but DNA wasn't known in the 1930s. There is footage of Nazi researchers in places as far afield as Tibet taking head, nose and eye measurements, looking for racially pure subjects. Prior to the 1940s, experiments on humans were limited. 
but experiments on livestock were not. Indeed, we've been experimenting on animals for centuries. Look at the different breeds of dogs. They all fundamentally come from the wolf, but a chihuahua and a wolfhound are rather different. Stick in a poodle there as well. These things don't look like they should all be the same creature. They are. It was all done through selective breeding. And so, it's therefore unsurprising that the Nazis also wanted to do animal husbandry to try and create what they thought was pure species. And the Nazis wanted to breed cows selectively in an attempt to turn them to their origins. There is a breed that exists today called the heck cow, and that was a result of this program. They were specially bred by German zoologists and brother Heinz and Lutz Heck to simulate what a racially pure cow would have looked like according to Nazi theories. In particular, they wanted to recreate the long extinct auroch, which is to cows what the wolf is to dogs. And they did this by breeding them with Spanish fighting bulls to increase the aggression and hairier forms of cows as well. And what they created was a kind of Nazi super cow. And if you ever do do a Google search for heck cows, that's H-E-C-K, you'll see they've got very long horns. And actually, it was uh, back in, I think, 2015, that there was a Devon farmer called Derek Gow who was attacked by some of his herd of heck cows. Unsurprising because they're quite aggressive and they're now considered a rare breed. But because he was attacked by the cows, he was forced to destroy them. And I believe they were turned into some rather delicious sausages. So no matter how racially pure a cow may be, we can always have our revenge on them by ultimately eating them. Well... That's Neon's take on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Really hope you enjoyed that. To be in for a chance of winning a pair of tickets to see Ready Player One at a cinema of your choice, all you have to do is leave a five-star review with your real name and let us know your email address, which you can do all on neonpodcast.com forward slash Ready Player One. If you need that address again, it's neonpodcast.com forward slash ready player one or one word. Next time on Neon, I'll be talking about the real history behind the controversial TV series Troy Fall of a City. And in that one, we're going to be talking about, well, did the Trojan War even happen? Was the horse actually some kind of weapon and of course Achilles and Zeus were they black Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.